Good evening. You are tuned into another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month, every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Mountain Time. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on CJSW.com. This episode of Writer's Block features an interview with Neil Howell as well as an interview with Kai Thomas. Make sure to buy their works from a local bookstore near you and keep that dial locked to 90.9 FM. Coming up first, we have my interview with Neil Howell. Stay tuned. Good evening, everybody. You are tuned into CJSW 90.9 FM. This is Maddie Robinson interviewing Neil Howell about his new novel, There Are Wolves Here Too. Hi, Neil. Welcome to the studio. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How well, are you? I am doing wonderful. I'm so glad to have you on the show again. I do understand that you were on the show before, correct? Yeah, I did. When my first novel, Only Pretty Damned, came out, um, Nymphony was kind enough to have me on as well. So it's cool to be back. So let's get started. Uh, would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, this is my second novel with my publisher, New West Press. Um, and I, I feel that I'm still, to an extent, in my usual wheelhouse with this. Um, I'm still writing noir fiction or crime fiction. But I think that where this deviates the most from my first book is that uh, more than anything else, this is a coming-of-age story. It takes place in a fictional Alberta city in 1997. The city's called Haddington Springs, and um, it's one of those cities that is technically a city, but really feels a lot more like a small town. And we get the story from my main character, Robin, who is an adult now, but he's recalling his first summer as a teenager. And Robin was um, one of the last people to see his friend's younger sister before she goes missing uh, near a ravine at the heart of the city. So it obviously has a strong impact on him. And being that it's such a tight-knit community he lives in, it sends a huge ripple effect throughout the community. Uh, Neighbors become suspicious of one another. People become paranoid. And in trying to make sense of what happened, Robin and his two best friends, Steph and Dylan, um, are forced to confront some pretty dark truths about their home, about the people closest to them, and are forced to confront some stuff about themselves as well. So that's my elevator pitch, assuming that it's <laughs> a minute-long elevator ride. Yeah, assuming yeah. that you're going up the Calgary Tower or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very Stephen King, the whole adult looking back on their on their teenage years. You get this a lot with novels. What What made you choose to frame it that way as like an adult looking back on that specific time? Oh, that's a great question. I I first off love Stephen King, and he's a writer who, I mean, got me into writing fiction myself, and I have, I can't, and I have no desire to get rid of his influence. So books like The Body, which was adapted into Stand By Me, was a huge influence. Um, I think I'm also a big sucker for nostalgia, whether I like to admit it or not. It's kind of cool to look at your own past in hindsight, and being someone who grew up around this time, it was cool to examine certain things about that time and think about the impact they've had on people which isn't to say that any of this is autobiographical um but i i just like i like looking at things in hindsight my first novel also takes place in a bygone era i think i just have a tendency to avoid the present day just because um i feel like you can't really absorb the the zeitgeist and the feel of a time until you have some distance from it so and then just a lot of my favorite novels and media in general are these things that are told in retrospective. One of my favorite movies is The Sandlot. I think it's just that type of story. I like people trying to make sense of something that happened a long time ago. 
It's interesting that you bring up the 90s. Um, I understand that this book takes place in 97, right? Yeah. That's funny because that's the year I was born. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny because sometimes in people's memory, the 90s '90s go until like 2004 or something. Depending on how they see it, it's really weird. Yeah. Um, I think you make a really interesting point about the fact that people can't really characterize an era until they've been out of it for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did want to ask actually about this specifically because lately I've noticed that there's been a lot of throwback to the 90s where before it was like you know like 50s 60s 70s 80s but the 90s always seemed too close for comfort like you couldn't really throw them back whereas i think something has shifted recently in the last few years where now the 90s seems like so far in the past what do you what do you make of that especially in context of writing a novel Uh. that's taking place then like what flipped the switch do you think it was too much social media do you think it was all the covid stuff that made us officially feel like we're in a different digital era like what exactly was it about the 90s that you think flipped us into being like okay this is now the past like yeah i'm not sure and i um well first off i feel totally old i felt old just walking from my car back through Mac Hall, even though I went to the university myself. Like, I think it was like, yeah. I'm going gray. Oh, no. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm really not sure what it is about the 90s. And I think that the decade kind of has a, a kitsch factor that it has earned. Um, I don't know if it has the sort of um, the charm of even the 1980s, the 1970s. And that might be because I grew up then and I can sort of acknowledge it as being the sort of vapid time that it was. And that's not to say there wasn't great stuff about the 90s. And there's things that I miss and I very much enjoyed the nostalgia element of that. I, I think, and this is the thing that's too, like perplexing to me, is just um, seeing some of the 90s things that have come back with a vengeance. I can't wrap my head around just having seen them. Like even some of the fashions where I see them having this weird resurgence and yeah. I just think like, oh, I thought we were better than that now as a oh, society. No. But oh, these, are, <laughs> these things are coming back, right? But I, I truly don't know what it is. I feel like it's just, there's sort of like an unofficial amount of years that needs to pass before we can say, okay, this is now officially the past. And I don't know if it's a decade or what it is. I don't know if you find this being that um, you were born in 97, but watching, say, like a film from the early 2000s now, even though that's a time that for me doesn't seem like a horribly long time ago, watching it now, films of that era have their own aesthetic that is very distinct to that time. So I can't make sense of it beyond that. All I can say is it's interesting and shrug. Yeah, I was I was reading some other things you've written about the 90s, particularly how you find it very vapid, how there's a lot of... You don't exactly look at on on that era with glamour or anything like that. Which yeah, I think is, is, and, is, and not is to say fair. that I hated it, but I just think it was as a culture, it was one of the times where we were finally able to commodify everything. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. something we've been perfecting as a society since then in the worst way possible. But that was right. when we finally hit every subculture just started to show up at the mall. Everything had a, a price tag or a label slapped on it. People started to really define themselves by brand names and things like that. So I associate a lot of that with the mid 90s for me. Speaking of that, I did want to ask, though, so you do mention that as a genre, noir has an underlying desire to corrupt its characters and its setting. So do you feel like it's also corrupting the time as well, like the time of the 90s? Is that also something that you kind of wanted to corrupt or sort of show the shadow of? Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, I think show the shadow of. I think um, any setting will have sort of its its dark underbelly. I hate using that cliche, but we speak in cliches, so here it is. Sure. <laughs> um, I think any, any time or any place has that characteristic to it. Um, it just is a matter of sussing that out when you're writing about it. So that's just the thing I happen to be interested in, um, which isn't to say that I'm a like depressing person or anything like that, but um, I just find that the most interesting thing to explore. I, I've been trying to make sense of it recently too, just thinking of sort of the, the advent of noir and how so many people associate that with Los Angeles, because Los Angeles is this city of, um, I mean, glitz and glamour and this sort of superficial 
um, wonderfulness, but um, then it's at the same time, it's sort of like the brighter it is up here, the darker it is below. And right. I wonder if uh, just the overabundance of neon in the 90s might have had the same thing. Everything was bright and iced tea and Gap commercials and khakis and sunny good times. <laughs> the and the stripes and everything, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so just looking for the, looking on the not so bright side is just my, my niche, I guess. Well, it's interesting too, because like thinking about Los Angeles, that's, you know, obviously a kind of a translation of lost angels and stuff like that, which mm. makes you think of almost like a fallen time or something like that. It's interesting though, too, because you know, that's before 9-11, before the rapid social media, internet, all that stuff. So it does feel kind of like a lost era a yeah, little bit totally. or something. People didn't know what they were about to lose. Yeah, um, absolutely. But then at the same point too, like every every era has its own sort of loss of innocence moment. I just feel like that was the one that capped off that time, like 9-11 yeah, in particular. But yeah, right. I feel like these, these sort of moments are something that unfortunately seem to recur over and over again. See, I do sound really bleak and depressing actually now that I'm hearing myself talk. <laughs> right? but... Speaking of though, I did want to ask about the the missing kid or the missing person kind of plot. So I always associated this plot kind of with more like the 70s and 80s and sort of that like milk kid on a milk carton kind of panic. Um, when writing about this, what were your kind of roadblocks? Did you Were you worried about this plot being cliche? Like, what were your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I was worried about cliche and I did my best to steer clear of it. I think um, the, the feeling of, or the fear rather of being abducted or something was probably much different. You know, my experience being a, a male in the 90s than, you know, people in the 80s, the 70s, etc. So I just, when I think of the way that abduction and the fear of that, which is probably a fear every child has at some point point i just think of the omnipresence of block parent signs and like the stranger danger talks right. at school and yeah. everything like that and um I, i'm sure that you know there's people listening to me saying that oh that wasn't a total characteristic of the 90s but i felt like with my group of friends in the neighborhood i grew up in and everything there was this like ever-present fear if a if a car pulled down and or pulled up and asked you for directions or whatever you know you just imagine oh it's going to be like in one of those commercials i'm going to be it's going to ask me if i want candy and like, <laughs> the white me. van yeah and there's also like <laughs> the as, mustache yeah it's like I think part of coming of age as well too is like wrapping your head around that unfortunate aspect of life right like if you think of coming of age stories as um, taking off the rose colored glasses of childhood and sort of being forced to acknowledge these gray and sometimes very dark areas in the world that's totally the case with with that sort of fear and that usually happens maybe a little bit earlier than 13 but kind of around that age like you don't really have a solid understanding of what people go through like I remember you know I'd be a, I'd be like five and riding my bike or something and if you worry that someone's going to abduct you your mind almost goes to this sort of like cartoonish sort of abduction yeah. where you're like are they going to put me in a wooden cage over a boiling cauldron and <laughs> you know poke me with a stick or something you yes. don't really have this this grasp on the the horrors of life yeah i think children too they have it's like cartoon is such a great word like cartoon violence or something mm -hmm, right absolutely. like they have the idea but no experience to match so they might like they understand the idea of Valentine's Day, but that doesn't mean they actually like fall in love and go mm -hmm. on dates. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah, kids totally. have such a, it's weird. They have such a symbolic idea of, of reality. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I understand, you know, setting is really important because it connects very heavily and closely to plot. And I assume with a missing child or with really any mystery, like a small town provides, you know, it's not like in the city where if something happens, not everyone knows each other. Mm -hmm. Whereas in like a small town, everyone knows each other. Is that kind of why you chose like Alberta? Like why specifically that setting? I did want to write a setting that was at least sort of familiar. So even though I didn't grow up in small town Alberta, or I guess in this case, small city Alberta, I wanted it to be Albertan because I feel that if the book's written by me, I'm channeling 
experiences that were Albertan. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not that I identify solely as an Albertan and that's my like my thing in life. But um I, I also It is some people's thing yeah, in life. No, but oh, no. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm kidding. I passed a lot of cars on the way here. It's it's their thing. Cars yeah. you mean trucks? No, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah, they make bumper <laughs> stickers kidding. for that. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. um so th- there was that and then just also I find that I, I like writing in contained spaces. Um, I think it's, it was the same with my previous novel. My first book, Only Pretty Damn, took place in a traveling circus. And I just like the idea that everyone was sort of contained together. I find it's just sort of a great breeding ground for paranoia and suspicion when everyone's kind of in the same boat. Yeah. And it's, it's also the, the idea that a lot of people wouldn't be around each other unless they had no choice. In which case, if you're in the same setting, you're there for a reason. So you have no, no choice, which creates conflict and friction. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask, so where did you get the, the title? Is it because your last name is Howell or is that, <laughs> was that awesome. accidental? I, that was totally accidental, okay. but a couple of people brought that up. One of them was oh. my friend's six-year-old daughter and she was like, did he have to write it because his last name's Howell? But um, I, I didn't realize kids. that until I literally, <laughs> until I saw it in print. I'm like, oh, a guy named Howell wrote a wolf book. I used the idea of wolves as a, a metaphor in the book, um, not to like give anything away, but there's that, there's the sort of, um, you know, predatory nature of them. If you think back to even fairy tales the way that they show up there and um, I'm one of those people who I whenever I start writing anything um, like I'm only two books in I shouldn't say like whenever I start as if I have this you know this library of my 80 novels that I've written but um, that and a couple of short stories that I've had published uh, the title is one of those things that just occurs so I usually pull it from a, a line of dialogue or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, titles are tricky, but I find like you kind of know, especially if a title is dropped somewhere in the work, you kind of you're like, oh, that would make a good title. You yeah. can usually kind of feel it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask as well. So I understand that you have a degree in education, correct? Yeah. Are you actually a teacher? Yeah, or, I am. Yeah. I teach high school. So how do you think this, like, do you take a lot of inspiration from your time working with children and adolescents and teenagers? Or do you find that you teach more to them? Or is it like a back and forth thing? Like when you're when you're writing, do you think about your interactions with actual teenagers that you have all the time? I didn't for this just because I felt I was drawing so much on, like the way that a teenager behaves now is a lot, a lot different than the way a teenager behaved, right. um, you know, when I was one myself. And I mean that in the best way possible. Now I have. <laughs> really? I have, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like there, I, well, there's certain things that I think weren't just, they weren't on our radar at that time. I think right. there was this sort of widespread ignorance that we're still trying to get over as a culture. And of course there's obstacles in that. Oh, I'm drifting into bleak territory again. Um, <laughs> I, I, I drawing on my experience because I think that the experience of a teenager in 97 was unique to that time and it would be different today. And the other thing is I feel, even though I, I love chatting with teenagers, I enjoy my job so much. Um, I'm just on, I'm, I have a unique vantage point right now. So I feel like I can't really tap into that feeling, at least in an authentic way now. So that's why it made sense for me to just sort of dig into my own feelings and try to recall what it was like. Do you feel like teenagers, sorry, this might be going a little off track of the book, but I'm just curious in general, do you feel like teenagers nowadays... Because of social media, they're they're actually more self-aware about their behavior, so they're less goofy and less immature, and all these things. Like they're less uneducated. Like they're too they're too self-aware now. Yeah, is that is that I, it? You I think? think so, but I think it's also a double-edged sword because I think that um, self-consciousness and just this sort of hyper awareness of your appearance um, and the judgment of others, I think that comes back tenfold as well. Where you exist in a world where anything you put out there is immediately subject to the scrutiny of whoever sees it. So I think it's a lot yes. better just in terms of people. We've come along way I think in that regard and I think there's so much positive to it but it also comes at a cost 
if you're teaching teenagers and things like this, and since you've written a couple of books and written other things as well, like what advice do you give to teenagers that are wanting to become writers? Or do I'm sure they must ask you because they know that you've published. Like Yeah, a little bit. And I never, I always discourage them from reading my books if they're like, hey, they, they come and ask me about it. I'm just like, yeah, read it when you're 25 or something. Really? Like, yeah. Well, how oh, come? Oh, just, I think just because of the content. Like I just, right. um, I, I think it's appropriate, but I'm also not the the sole judge of that, right? So yeah, I just say, yeah, check it out. Maybe when you're older, that doesn't mean that like the bulk of them don't just go get it anyway. Mm-hmm. In terms of, yeah, I do have kids asking me about writing all the time. And I guess my main advice would be the same thing I'd say to anyone, which is just, you need to read a lot and you need to just practice writing um, and just be open to reading in your comfort zone, out of your comfort zone, try to expose yourself to as much as possible. That's always good advice. I feel like it's just kind of a curve too. Like you just have to almost have the experience of reading and writing for a few years. Like it's like you can't really really jump over it. It just kind of happens. I don't know if you find this with your writing as well, but there's things that I have looked back that I tried writing like 10 years ago, where if I look back now, I see these sort of little nuggets of what became my voice. But for the most part, it's just a huge cringe reading writing from that time. Like it kind of takes a while. (laughs) I think it was like Neil Gaiman or whatever who said, even with him, like something published over six a month ago he's like Ugh. like you know like oh, why did yeah. i do that it's like yeah <laughs> yeah <And> someone <laughs> of his caliber you're also like oh sure okay but really yeah. it's it's totally true like i even if i were to flip through only pretty damned and read a paragraph right now i mean i i'm very proud of that book but right in order for my for this book to come out i had to do what i did with that book in terms of trying to refine my style and figure out what my voice was that's true i think it's hard for people to figure out what their style is before they've like really come into themselves versus just like emulating others oh yeah things totally like this. yeah 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 Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show this evening. It was lovely to chat with you. Um, did you have any final messages for any of the listeners that are thinking about buying your book? Uh, yeah, if you're thinking about buying it, I would encourage you to just follow through with that thought and go buy it right now. Uh, so yes. the name of the... Spend the money. Yeah, Do it, so you go, guys. There are Wolves Here Too by Neil Howell. But, you know, check it out from the library or go to a bookstore and get it. Local bookstore. Support your local bookstores. So Shelf Life Books, Owl's Nest Books, Pages on Kensington, all those awesome local stores the we have here in Calgary. In the next page. Yep. Yeah, yep. so many great ones here in the city. Yeah, I, te- I definitely second that. I love local bookstores. They're always fun to go to. They also update their, their tables regularly, so it always feels like a new place when you walk in, which mm-hmm. is always great. Yeah, and I have to really say with this book in particular, the, the local shops in Calgary have been so supportive. So thank you, local bookstores. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in. You have been listening to an episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. That was my interview with Neil Howell on There Are Wolves Here Too. Coming up next, we have an interview between Jenny Kwong and Kai Thomas. Stay tuned. And they lived happily ever after on CJSW. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. This is my interview with Kai Thomas with his debut novel, In the Upper Country. And so I guess this is a busy time for you. So I just want to ask one question to start off. So what yeah. does it mean to tell the story of the Underground Railroad and abolition to a new generation of readers? That's that's a good, good question. I think what it means, or at least what it meant for me, was an opportunity to reflect back on a couple different chapters of Canadian history that 
when I learned them growing up, were described to me as kind of forming moments in our national identity. Uh, the Underground Railroad, as well as you know, an earlier period in the book that I dive into a little bit, the War of 1812. Both of these were kind of taught to me as moments that, to a certain extent, de- defined us as Canadians. And I was interested. I think fiction is a great place to explore history it can kind of breathe new life into conversations around chapters of history that is what i was trying to do in writing my book and so who are the characters in the book uh you have lucinda lucinda yeah it's it's kind of a unusual name but i actually came across it in a historical document i had begun learning about a man whose name was John Daddy Hall. He was of African and indigenous descent. He was born in, you know, what is now Canada. Had this really long and fantastic life in, in many respects. And as I was doing research about him and interested in delving into some of the, the topics that his life kind of exemplifies, I came across the name of one of his children in a census record. And it was Lincinda, and it struck me as an interesting name. There's all sorts of interesting names that I found in 19th-century documents, but this one uh, particularly struck me. And when I started writing her character, she quickly took over uh, as the protagonist of the novel. So she she is uh, definitely the main character. And although the book features other voices in the first person, it really follows. Four or five days in Lincinda's life, and as the other voices come in, they are kind of like the voices that she is encountering or reading about in her experience. And who is the older woman? They、uh, get into a conversation where they're telling stories back and forth. Yeah, they the two get into a series of encounters where they exchange stories, and it's that kind of that exchange of stories that forms the the, the core narrative structure of the novel. She is a、uh, an old woman who recently arrived in the town in which Lincinda lives. That is one of the the terminuses of the Underground Railroad, and this. Period of 1859, where the book opens, and this old woman is jailed for the shooting of a slave hunter. And Lincinda is tasked as a journalist to interview her and to get her story. A task which she hopes will be fairly simple and straightforward, but the the woman has. Other designs for her, I guess, and and really challenges her to to barter、uh, story for story, and that is the、uh, that is how the novel unfolds. And what does it mean to have recorded history,、uh, like a re- written legacy, back in the nineteenth century versus today, when it's easier to keep records? It's that's an interesting question. I think the written histories that I encountered and in doing research, written and oral to a certain extent, but the written histories that I encountered and really drew from were mostly a variety of things. The most kind of direct accounts that I read of people who I modeled some of the characters in the book after were records of what what's known as what or what's called runaway slaves. Narratives, and so there's just many, many hundreds of these recorded narratives of people who survived enslavement, usually in the American South, and escaped often up to Canada, especially in the period between 
1850 and 1865 and formed communities in the, 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 the territory that went on to become known as Canada. Many of their stories were really foundational in, in some of the character development work that I did. But aside from that, I really tried to read between the lines of different primary source materials, such as court records and you know, ship muster rolls, even recipe books and things of that nature, just trying to draw widely to really give myself a good sense of not only the material culture of this place that I was trying to conjure, but get a sense of, you know, what wouldn't have been written in something like a runaway slave narrative and try to depict that. And so, for example, one of the themes of the book is is the encounters between Black and Indigenous people of the era, of which there is not a lot of primary source material available, but reading between the lines of some of these documents that I'm mentioning helped uh, helped me imagine scenes that dealt with, with that topic. And tell me about the part of Ontario where the story takes place. You said Dunmore was a terminus for the Underground Railroad? Dunmore is a fictional town, so I, I made it up in order to represent a town that perhaps could have existed. There were many towns that emerged in particular after 1850, as I mentioned, that date is significant in that it was the year in which the Fugitive Slave Act of in the U.S. was passed, which made it essentially a lot less safe for people fleeing enslavement to live in even in the northern United States, where slavery had been abolished for quite some time. And so it was really at that point, 1850, where Canada became the destination for people coming up on the Underground Railroad. A number of these communities formed mostly in what's now kind of southern Ontario region, but, uh, you know, further to a certain extent. And they formed these communities. And so many of which are not exist in existence today. There's a many reasons for that, some of which are, for example, you know, there are black communities in towns such as Windsor, Ontario. There's the black community of Buxton, Ontario, that still exists and has a vibrant culture. And, and it was this kind of era where where these towns were forming and where I imagine the, 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 the culture, this kind of this new culture that no longer really exists was was forming. And I was really interested in what uh, would have been the, the, the realities of uh, that, that culture and what would have been the conversations and the important challenges that people in these towns and communities were facing. And I guess uh, for the most part, you try to keep the tone of the book to be more of a slice of life, slice of life story than some of the more intense books I've read on slavery and, and the abolitionist movement. I'm thinking uh, Kindred by Octavia E. Butler, as well as the Book of Negroes by Lawrence Hill. Yeah, I guess slice of life. I haven't thought of it in that respect as of yet, but I think that's the fair way to describe it. I think part of what characterizes my novel is that, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not following a single character as with a novel such as Book of Negroes. So it doesn't have that that sense or that character uh, that uh, it, it, it is not a book of that of that nature. It follows different perspectives and vantage points and and jumps back and forth through time, not in the way that Kindred does literal time travel, but uh, it, the the point of views and the perspectives and the narrations take us 
take the reader back and forward in time. So it is, it follows a different logic, I guess, of themes and, and of time than, um, than some of the, these books that you're mentioning. Yeah. And I guess, uh, what is it about the exchange of stories between Lucinda and old women that appeal to you? I already asked this question, but uh, I guess I'm asking what has the role of storytelling has played in your own life? In my own life, I've always been interested in oral storytelling and call and response style storytelling. I both, you know, in my own life and in the stories that I do like to read. So I've always felt the appeal and been interested by the effect of a story that that isn't bound to a single perspective or or character, but that wanders and 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 approaches a topic from a number of different vantage points. I would say it just came from my interest in reading and in and in listening to those those types of stories that the decision came to to structure my own novel in that way i guess uh this is uh about the end of the interview anything you'd like to add before we wrap up uh no thank you so much for having me on on the show and and for asking these questions i i really appreciate it okay thank you very much uh kai thomas with the new book uh that was released in january called in the upper country so thank you kai thomas for your time today thank you hi this is jenny kwong for writer's walk that was my interview with Kai Thomas, a writer, carpenter, and land steward. He is Afro-Canadian, born and raised in Ottawa, and descended from Trinidad and the British Isles. In the Upper Country is his first novel. You have been listening to an episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of the month every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Mountain Time. This episode features interviews with Neil Howell and Kai Thomas. With that, that will conclude our episode of Writer's Block. Thank you so much for tuning in, and see you next time.